You're listening to the Master Photography Podcast. Welcome into the Master Photography Roundtable, part of the Master Photography Podcast Network. You are joined by thousands of photographers listening to the show who are all on the same journey to master their photography. I'm Jeff Harmon, the host for this episode, and I'm joined by my good friend, Steve Brazel. Welcome back to Master Photography, Steve. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to have you on. First off, so that I have another voice on the show, <laughs> I've been doing some some solo episodes lately, and I know it's not nearly as interesting to hear me drone on as it is to have someone else on with me. So. I would disagree. <laughs> well, good. I, I'm glad you feel that way. Hopefully, the listeners do too, because they, they've been hearing a lot from just me lately. But thank you for coming on. I'm so, so excited to have you on the show. Um, listeners, if you don't know, I had Steve on before. We, we did the Curious Case of the Decaying photo and that episode is as exciting as it sounds so you need you need to go check it out we talk about a bunch of tips on on like storage and how to like identify odd behaviors and what to do about it with with discs and images and archive workflow you go check out all that that podcast episode if you are interested in it so steve if anyone's new we have new listeners constantly of course so why don't you give like your elevator pitch really quick an introduction to to you who is steve brazel Oh, I thought you meant elevator pitch. I was going to go, uh, what floor? <laughs> oh, 19, home appliances? One moment, please. Uh, so I am a, uh, I'm a Southern California-based music photographer. Uh, I am a, <clears throat> much like you, my friend, I am a geek. Yes. Uh, I have been in the IT space, as you are, for a long, long time. I got my first MCSE, Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer, on Windows NT351. Right. And... When I stopped teaching for a company that I taught, I had to get my certification to teach Microsoft certified courses at the time. Uh, I started doing independent consulting, which is what I, that's my day job now. I'm an, I'm an IT consultant for small businesses in and around where I live. But I've also been in and around the music business and entertainment business for 40 years. I started in radio in 1979, 1980. I still work in radio. I'm on the air at a Southern California rock station, uh, 96.7 KCAL FM, KCAL Rocks. And that led me, I started photography around that time, photographing my son as he went into marching band in high school. And when I combined those two, it ended up with me starting to do live music photography. So I photograph concerts. I uh, basically will shoot on stage in the photo pit, depending on the job, whether I'm going as media or shooting with, with better access than media. And that's almost all that I photograph other than kind of what we're going to talk about today. I'm not like a lot of photographers who are, oh, there's downtime, I'll go shoot a squirrel or, you know, squirrel, uh, <laughs> right. spiders or flowers or it's, I live and breathe being at a concert and photographing live musicians. And you have that radio voice. It's just amazing. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, now batting, Jeff Harmon. Oh, I love it. I wish I had the radio voice. That would be good. But I've got what I got, so we'll work with it. But you got the radio. No, I'm not going to say there. That would have come out. The radio right. face? Yes, for sure. That too. <laughs> that's, that's what Scott Bourne always says to me is, I can't do your podcast, Steve, because you're video. Right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. 
All right. Well, let's let's get to our topic. We've we've done enough of the introductions now. People will know you. Oh, by the way, I do want to mention Photo Taco. We did a whole episode over on Photo Taco about concert photography. So if oh, you're interested right. in that, head over there. Just go to phototacopodcast.com, search for concert, and Steve will come right up and you'll be able to see our discussion on that too. So, all right, let's get into today's topic then. I'm really excited because this is a, a genre of photography I I've given a half-hearted initial try. It didn't work out well, and I haven't gone back to it. But So I'm hoping that Steve's going to be able to point me in the right direction so that I can figure out maybe how to give this a little bit better try, and that is shooting through a telescope. We're going to talk specifically moon through the telescope today, but it would, I think, apply to everything. So It applies to almost anything. Yeah. Okay, so shooting using a telescope with your camera. Um, there's two phenomenal images that you're going to want to go over to the show notes to check out so that you can see what it is that we're talking about. If you can, you can go like pause the podcast right now and get in front of a computer or look it up on your phone so that you can follow along because they are incredible. So just make sure to come back. Yeah, for sure. Come back and listen. We got a lot to say about this. Um, moonshots here, Steve, you've got two. Will you just kind of walk us through a little bit? Tell us about these shots. Let's do like a mini behind the shot which again that's another thing we should mention we didn't talk about yet steve does his own podcast uh do you call it a podcast still when you have so much video yes i i and and in podcast forums on facebook people go no podcast is audio only youtube is for video well no podcast by concept is an rss right rss yep and I actually, my my podcast has two RSS feeds. It has an audio-only version, uh-huh. and it has a video version. So wherever you get your podcasts from in a podcast-catching app, you can get it in audio or video, assuming that your podcast app supports video. So right. Apple Podcasts supports video. Uh, I use an app I love called RSS Radio. It supports video. Some of the more popular ones don't support video. Right. And in that case, if that's the app you love, that's fine. My videos are on YouTube as well. But you're missing out if you don't see the video. It's it's really, really phenomenal. And Steve, just he he gets people to come on his show and they they analyze a the shot. They go over like the story of the shot and one shot. what it took to, to go behind it and everything. Let's do that with one of yours. And, and by the way, we should mention... Uh, it's not out yet, but at the time that we are recording this episode, literally the Saturday before this, you and I recorded an episode with you with one of your Milky Way shots. Yes. And that should be coming up uh, fairly shortly as well. Yep. So, and eventually I will update links in the show notes so that all of that's there when this is all published and done. Okay, good. So, Steve, let's do a little mini behind the shot, except we're reversing roles here. So, yeah, it's so, weird. So, t- tell me about your moon shot. Let's, let's start with the one that has kind of the whole moon in the picture, although it's, it's like a half moon phase, so you don't have a, a full moon. But tell me about that shot. So let me first start by saying, because we talked about the beginning that there's a lot of different things that you can photograph. We kind of alluded to that there's different things you can photograph when you use a telescope with your camera. And there's some amazing stuff in space, in deep space. For some reason, and I can't explain it, I have always been fascinated by photographing the moon. The moon doesn't change a lot. I mean, other than its phase, depending on where you are in the world, you will mostly see kind of the same look from the moon. But the phase, the angle, the detail that you can get, um, some people put color filters on it. It still, to me, is just 
one of the most amazing subjects to photograph. And it's not a hard subject to photograph. I mean, you can grab a 70 to 200 and photograph the moon. Right. You can grab a 70 to 200 with a, a uh, two-time teleconverter, or you can grab an inexpensive, you know, brand new Canon EF, uh, I'm sorry, RF 800 F11 if you wanted to. And you can photograph the moon. It's not super difficult to photograph, except we are capturing light whenever we do photography. And by definition, the moon lighting wise is actually difficult. You have one side of the moon, like for example, in this shot where I've got what is just over a half a moon, one side that's pitch black. Right. The other side that is unfiltered, harsh sunlight direct sunlight. And so you have extreme contrast to deal with. And so where a lot of people I find struggle when I see pictures of the moon online is they struggle with that dynamic range and there's always blown out areas, even if it's just a single crater that happens to be blown out. And to me, that is part of the challenge of photographing the moon Along with something that people don't realize, it's not as much of an issue when you're shooting handheld with a camera and lens, but once you start introducing a telescope to the mix and the magnification of a telescope, like for example, this half moon shot, it's cropped a little bit, but not much. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, that was the moon. I just took a little bit of extra blackout, not much. When you're doing that, that moon will follow. If I lined it up on the right side of my frame within, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds, it would be out the other side of right. the other frame. It's moving when you have It's hauling. <laughs> right. It is, it is shocking how much <laughs> it, it is doing that. And this was done, this moon was done. I kind of use a couple of different methods. And actually, this moon was done... Uh, one of two ways. There's something called prime focus imaging. And that's where you attach your telescope to your camera and the telescope directly becomes your lens. Now, in my particular case, and we'll get into the parts later, I guess, but with my telescope, and this is not, not you know, on every telescope, I have two ways that I can attach my camera to my telescope. So if you picture a telescope sitting there, and normally the telescope looking up at the sky, the eyepiece that you put your eye to is on the top of the telescope. Right. You look down, you look into a mirror that then sends it out through the lens. I can do that. I can actually put an attachment on my camera that converts it to a, a one and a quarter inch little circle that slides down into the normal eyepiece hole. Right. And that's prime focus imaging. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, that's eyepiece projection imaging. That's actually how this one was shot. But I also have prime focus imaging, which is where you attach the camera in line with the telescope. So on the back of my telescope, I have a little cap. I can unscrew that cap, attach my camera there. Now, the, the telescope literally looks like a lens, right? It's coming off the front of my camera. Okay. There's... I flip the mirror down so that there is no mirror involved. I'm looking straight out the telescope at that point. I mean, there's a mirror involved, but it's it's different. And in that particular case, 
my problem with shooting that way is twofold and I don't do it often. I have the attachments and I've done it. I don't do it often and here's why. When you hang a Canon 5D Mark IV off the back of a telescope, the front of the telescope goes whoop yeah. up into the air. Yeah, right. So I've had to put, and especially if you're using, my telescope has a motor that will track celestial objects so that you can do multiple shots and keep everything aligned. Well, I had to create counterweights to hang off the front of the scope. There's actually a mount for it to, to balance that. The other problem is a Canon 5D Mark IV doesn't have an articulating screen. So when you mount your camera to the back of the telescope, it's basically facing the ground. You have to kneel down to look through the eyepiece on your camera or see the LCD screen. Right. So for me, and the way this image was shot, I put an attachment on and I just slide my camera right into the normal eyepiece hole and I look down on it. And it's much, much easier. So let me just clarify a couple of things because I, I said a lot of different key terms here. Prime focus imaging is where the the scope basically becomes the actual lens to the camera. Okay. It just attaches straight onto the camera with an adapter. Eyepiece projection imaging, which is how I shot both of these really, is where you put the camera in the eyepiece hole and more specifically, it applies to the second image, the close-up image, which is not cropped at all. Where when I put my camera in the eyepiece hole, I have a, what's called a variable focus adapter. It's actually fairly deep. I put a normal telescope eyepiece inside this adapter. Okay. So now I've got my camera shooting through an adapter that has a magnification eyepiece in it of 18 millimeters. Goes down into the eyepiece hole of the scope and out the 1900 millimeter scope. Okay. Okay. And by the way, yes, when you are looking at your the moon that way with that eyepiece in there, um, it's almost hard to even focus. A, because the magnification, you could literally move microscopic movements and you'll go from blurry to focus to blurry. Oh, wow. And the moon is moving screamingly fast. Right. I mean, insanely fast when you're zoomed in that. Okay. Uh, let me let me add this really quick. There's also something called afocal, and afocal photography, which for years I thought was what I was doing, because I had seen somewhere, oh, you're shooting a camera through a telescope. That's afocal photography. Afocal photography, I've recently found out, is technically when you hold your camera up to an eyepiece on a scope. So in other words, your camera has, I'll make something up, a 51.8 already mounted on it. And you uh -huh. hold the lens or let's just use your phone, which uh -huh. I've done. Uh -huh. You have an eyepiece in there. You're watching the moon through a scope as you normally would. And you just take your phone and hold it up to the eyepiece. The That's picture. a focal photography. Okay. At that point, you're focusing really on the eyepiece and not on the, not the image. Yes. Really. Yeah. Yes. And, and that. It's, it's a little more difficult, but the advantage to that is you do have a little bit more control. I mean, in my case, my lens is a fixed aperture, fixed focal length lens of the telescope. Okay, I have tons of questions, but I tried to go. organize them ahead of time <laughs> so, okay. that, so that we could go through them in an orderly fashion and I'm not all over the place. So let's start with the telescope itself. I okay. So... <laughs> 
I have a telescope that I was given, it was given to me. Um, it's one of those things where like the corporate world has this, this notion of like giving you gifts. If you've been in around, if you've been at the company oh, yeah. long enough, you know, and you're talking about when they give you a catalog. And yeah. You yeah. Yeah. You, catalog. You, like someday, one day in the, in the corporate mailing system, you'll get this like catalog of junk. <laughs> <laughs> and it is that you go through and instead what i always wished because i i was at one place for 23 years so i i got these routinely and every time it came i was like i wish they just give me the like 40 dollars they're spending on me <laughs> instead of having me pick one of these items of junk that i really don't want uh but then again i mean it's the only thing they're offering so i'm gonna I'm going to pick my junk item. Yeah, you're not going to say no, thank you. <laughs> right. Right. Because maybe something yes, would I actually will take be useful. The, the gardening trowel. Yes, right, right, you. right. Well, one of the years, a telescope was there. And so I thought, I know this thing is going to be complete garbage, but I'll give it a try. It would be fun at least to try to see something through the telescope and, and see if we can get it to you, to work. And I thought... Maybe I can get my camera attached to it and, and see if I can have some fun with it. So I, I did that. I don't even remember the brand. It's something super common, but it's it had to have been ultra cheap, very inexpensive. And you did attach your camera, though? You actually attached I it? I did. So I bought the T-adapter so I could get okay. it on there. Uh, the same problem, the weight problem. I don't think it had a cap on the back of it to be able to try Probably the, not. the other form. Um, it, anyway, it, it didn't ever really work i couldn't have it hold still enough with my camera on it i tried the count to add some counterweights like you said to and see if i could make it go but the the whole thing is so weak like it has a motor too but it just as soon as i attached the camera it i couldn't make it stay still and i will warn you if you do that without a counterweight and you try using the tracking mode oh you're gonna fry it so that you can <laughs> you know, do a nebula uh -huh. and you're going to do like you did with your, your Milky Way shot. You're going to do a bunch of images that you stack. Right. You can burn out the motor if you don't counterweight it right. 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 Because there's the, the, the weight is fighting it. One thing I'll, I'll give you a tip on a counterweight. Okay. By yeah, the way. yeah. Yeah. So when I did the counterweight the first time I was looking online and I found a couple of people that did one and I made one. And the problem was it, it wasn't the right weight and it was really, really hard to adjust. And I couldn't, I, I thought there's got to be a pre-made counterweight. Come yeah, on. right, right. I couldn't find one. Okay. So what I did was I got a flat piece of metal, drilled two holes in it that lined up with the two holes underneath my scope where you can mount something. And it went out just about to the end of, a little past the end of the scope. And then I bent it down a little bit to keep it out of any framing. And there I put a hole and a long bolt and I put washers on. Okay. Because now I effectively have a granular right. adjustment, you know, just like weightlifting. Oh, you know what? It's, it's not balanced. When I, when I undo all the tension knobs and just let it float, it's right. not balanced. Add another washer, you know, add a smaller washer. So it's a great way to counterweight is just do something where you can add metal washers or for that matter, plastic washers, whatever it takes to get the weight you need. Okay. So that's something I should try to see if this crummy one can do it. it you know, even without the camera, the thing barely functions. <laughs> well, and then there's that. Yeah. Right. It, it, I, I look through the eyepiece and most of the time, like, I don't even see an image. There's nothing here. <laughs> and 
so it was it was a, a massive challenge. We did manage at one point. We did get the moon through the eyepiece, and I used my phone because then I could just hold my phone to it pretty easily, and and we got some pictures, and they were okay, but it wasn't anything spectacular. Like I didn't even share them. I was so unimpressed, but it just it kind of worked. Um, all right, so so telescope wise, you have one that is it's the Mead ETX one twenty five PE, and right. you said it's not made anymore. Is that right? No, I've had this scope probably since I was trying to think about that too. Probably since two thousand five, six, some somewhere around there. It's it's been a really long time, and newer scopes have a lot of cool features that that mine does not. But there is still Mead still does make a one twenty five series. Yep. Uh, now they call it the ETX-125 Observer. In my day, my day, you know, when I bought the scope, <laughs> uh, there, there was an age thing in there somewhere. There was an ETX-125 and then there was the PE. And really the PE was the premier edition. Okay. It had slightly different coating on the lenses, as I recall. It has a different way of doing your, setting your scope. So it has a little, what they call a little red dot so that you can place the red dot on something through the viewfinder and then go look through the actual eyepiece. It has a different graphic wrapped around. It's minor stuff in some ways, but um, the new one, the Observer, is basically the equivalent. But here's here's the advantage to me to new scopes, and I haven't used one. I would love to get one and try it. In my day, and this is part of the reason I don't do as much deep space stuff as I I wish that I did, if you want to photograph a nebula or a star or, you know, whatever. You have to set your scope up in such a way that the motor can track it. Well, depending on where you are in the earth at any given point in time during the year, you're moving at a different speed than somebody else closer or farther away from the equator. So you have to take your scope, set it up towards north Adjust the azimuth angle. Right. So in my case, my big tripod has a motor on it. And under that motor on the tripod itself is a long pole with numbers on it. And that raises one side of the platen that the telescope is on. You have to raise it to a number that's equivalent to where you are in relation to the equator. Uh-huh. That puts the motor, not the scope, puts the motor at an angle to match the spin of the earth. Okay. So that then when you line your scope up with north, you then use the star software that's built into the motor. I have a little controller and I say, okay, go find this star. You basically calibrate it each time. Now that I've set it up, here's this, here's this. And once you've done that, it goes, okay, I know where I'm at now. Mm -hmm. And I can actually track this nebula so that you can do a 30 second exposure because as i said before stuff is moving screamingly fast the earth is spinning right and we don't realize it here but when you try and fill the frame with a moon for example you realize how fast you're moving right i i I make the comment the moon is moving fast no it's we're spinning right and the moon is moving (laughs) right um so one of the things that newer scopes have like your phone it's gps so they know where you're at and the motors can adjust. And that's a huge advantage. And I probably would do it more if I didn't have to go through all the calibration because it takes half an hour 
to it. Oh, yeah. It, and it was so confusing. That's part of the reason I'm sure I've struggled. This thing, the one that I have is so inexpensive. There is literally this like manual of multiple steps you have to follow. And I, I was like pretty much unable to do it most of the time. I would get out there and try to get it set up, calibrated so that things could follow along and whatever. And you have to pull out the manual each and every yeah. time because there's you just, no I mean, way unless you do a lot. It. Right. You know, right. you you don't remember. Right. And so it, mine didn't work. So my, my question for you, first off, the, the current price of this uh, Mead ETX-125 Observer is $1,500. Right. Um, mine originally, you know, I, I've looked everywhere online and all the old prices I see from the from around the 2008 area are saying seven dollars $800, which doesn't make sense to me because I'm pretty sure maybe it's because I bought eyepiece kits and stuff like that. Right. It comes most most scopes come with one twenty six millimeter eyepiece. I bought a case of uh, oh, right. four thousand series eyepieces. The case also came with some other parts. It came with colored filters. It came with a moon filter, which is effectively just an ND filter, because, again, the moon is super bright. We've all seen the blown out moon shots. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's a it's an ND filter. Uh, it came with a Barlow lens, which uh, is a basically a two time magnifier. So I bought this big kit. I ended up spending probably on mine at the time a thousand ish, give or take a hundred, probably eleven hundred, a thousand between a thousand eleven hundred. Uh, I also bought because I'm sixty miles from L.A. in a major, you know, I'm still in metropolitan Southern California, L.A. There's uh-huh. a lot of light pollution. Yeah, I bought a dew shield, and a dew shield is basically a lens hood, but for me. It wasn't the dew issue, which is, you know, when you're out at night and you get the dew and it. Okay. Uh, for me, it was, I'm using it as a lens hood to stop refractions on the giant five inch lens gotcha. that's on the front. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. The, the, the large element on the front. Uh, so I bought that as well. So, yeah, but you can find my scope right now used for very little money that's in, that are usually in very good shape, but new scopes have a lot to offer. 1500 is a lot though. It is. And, and so that was really kind of my next question. Is there any hope that you could get something less expensive? Maybe it would lack the GPS. Like there's one, I saw one that's a Mead Instruments 250502, 205,002, ETX80, um, which is about $300, $330. Um, you go, you, the, the millimeters, so yours is 1900 millimeters. That's that's amazing on the focal length versus this one says that you get about 400, which isn't a lot more than you get out of a long lens. Um, but would it have, would that have any hope of, of working? Do oh, you yeah. think? Yeah. Yeah. And okay. So mine is 1900 millimeters. Yeah. Uh, which is phenomenal. Yeah. But mine is also F 15. Yes. So if you, and we talk about, we got into reciprocals when we did the show of behind the shot with you Saturday that, should be out soon. <laughs> um, and we talked about knowing your reciprocals. Well, if you know your reciprocals and you think about F15, for most people, they think F16 is a is an even stop, right? right so you're just right. under a, a, an even stop mark. A big difference in scopes is the aperture. So, for example, that mead is F5. Okay. And then the other one, I think, was F8 point something. Uh, I don't remember. I, I did look them up. So 
one of the advantages that you get with a smaller scope like this, the GPS is, you know, a moot point. I mean, yeah, yeah get it if you can. Right, right. Right. Get get anything you can if you can. But, right. But that extra light is huge, right? I've shot through my scope at ISO 640 when the moon is super bright because moon changes brightness as well as, right. you know, changes size. Um, I've shot at ISO 640 at 200th of a second. I've shot at 80th of a second. But these shots, based on the time of year, how bright the moon was, I shot them very early so it wasn't a bright moon against a black sky, Right. Right. Um, I shot these at like 6.30 at night or something like that. It was still almost light out. Uh-huh. So in that particular case, the F-15 hurt me. And I shot these shots. Uh, I'm trying to remember now, but I think, I thought I had it written down. I can always pull them up and look. But I shot these shots at like, the close-up shot is I think ISO 8000. And the... uh other shot I think was around 3200 might have been 6400 so you know getting that five on a on an inexpensive lens like that mead the etx 80 and that's really what people would refer to it as and and it is the same series as mine right etx 125 etx 80 you're gonna get a lot more light through right and that is a really really good thing if you can do that now here's what I would suggest though if you're really looking it is amazing the 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 websites that are dedicated to astrophotography i mean seriously seriously dedicated people like you are with photo taco and master photography podcast but specifically to photographing deep space uh-huh and you can go you know google something like you know best astrophotography telescopes and then insert a year right uh, 2020 <laughs> right 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 the main thing you want to do is scopes today have modern options. So if you can get those, great, like the GPS that we talked about. Um, there is a downside to extreme zoom. Now, the 1900 on mine isn't a problem, but I'll give you an example. One time, I was trying to photograph Jupiter. Okay. I could see it perfectly clear. Okay. But it's still small, even at 1900 millimeters. Right. But it was perfectly clear. I thought I want to get in closer. So I did the thing where I took the variable focus adapter and I dropped like an eight millimeter extreme zoom eyepiece in there, then attached the camera and Jupiter almost filled my frame. Wow. I was completely unhappy with my photographs because I over magnified it, right? At $1,200, $1,100,000 scope, even a $1,500 scope, doesn't matter that you can get that close the optics aren't going to show as much detail as if you go buy a $3,000 8-inch scope. Gotcha. Right? Okay. 8-inch uh, you know, diameter scope. So I would have actually, and the stupid thing was I didn't take pictures without the eyepiece or with a, a lower eyepiece. I was like, hey, I'm going to fill the frame with Jupiter. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> and I would have been better off to have Jupiter smaller and crop. Right. Right. And I probably would have got a really good looking picture. So you have to understand what it is that you want to do, what you're kind of going for. Um, I found my notes, by the way, the uh, uh, 
Nope. That's oh yeah. The close up shot was ISO eight thousand. Okay. Okay. Right. Uh, whereas the did I make a note here? I don't have it. I'll have to pull it up in Lightroom. Um, but you know, imagine I'm at ISO eight thousand at f fifteen. Okay. Do the math. If I drop down to f ten, there's another stop of light right there. Right. If I go to f five, I get three more stops of light on that inexpensive $300 mead that you mentioned. And it does get you to 400 millimeters, which is, uh, you know, to get the combination of the focal length plus something that might actually track so that you can... Plus, if you do the variable focal, uh, variable adapter. Right. So variable projection adapter where you put an eyepiece in. Then you're there. I have not tried this and it just hit me. No, you couldn't. No, you probably could. I wonder if you could put a teleconverter on the camera before the T-ring adapter. Yeah. I have no idea what would happen. It would be interesting to try putting a two-time. But again, you could get a Barlow lens, which is a two-time multiplier, put that in the eyepiece hole, or just, you know, for that matter, just stick a, uh, you know, 26 millimeter and 18 millimeter eyepiece in there. And suddenly that 400 millimeters is a lot more powerful. Okay. All right, so what should they look for? If someone's going to shop, you, you mentioned go go consult these websites that are like dedicated to this. So they'll give you the pros and cons and maybe even they've tried it. Is there any way to tell if this motor is going to be capable of like holding things in place? I, I don't think it's possible on the really super cheap one that I've got. I, I think the motor's just way too weak and it can't handle this. But So is there any any way to tell? No, and I mean... You know, the problem is if you're if you're shooting a Fuji, right? Or, yeah. or a small interchangeable lens system, uh, that's gonna be, or for that matter, even an EOS R, which weighs a lot less than a 1DX Mark III. So if you are doing that type of a thing, uh, your camera weighs a different amount. You're you're gonna have to kind of try it. Or hey, the again, these people are Right. strangely passionate at times. <laughs> right. <laughs> Put a question in their forums. Right. Almost all of them would have forums and I would just put a question in their forums. Excellent. What do you got to lose? Right. Then go give it a try. It's so I love it every every type of photography I try teaches me things. I learn more and more and more about photography in general. I think I'm convinced it helps me in every er- other area I do in photography. It just helps me think through and make make decisions faster in when I'm responding to whatever it is I'm shooting and and have better ideas about how to work through challenges and problems and I, I love it it's it's so much fun to be able to do it so now I'm interested just to even see can I make the crummy one I've got work I'm gonna have to revisit it now I think and and, and see. therein lies the yeah that's that's the to me that's part of the fun part is trying to it's the reason I love photography in general, right? I mean, I bought the wrong camera from day one when I was photographing my kid on a football field. I bought a variable aperture lens and found out that every time I took a picture <laughs> right, uh, and then zoomed, the exposure would be different. And I didn't understand why at the time. Right, right. And sometimes those challenges make you in the long run a much better photographer. And, and I mean a much better photographer. Right. Um. And that's not a small thing, right? Challenge yourself. I know people who will shoot a concert with a manual focus lens. Right. And it's amazing what they get, but it makes them a better photographer in the end. 
So, yeah, push it. Go out there with the little scope that you have and try and make it whatever it is and try and make it work for what you can, understanding its limitations. The key is, though, you have to understand the limitations. Right, right. And so first step is I even have to make it like, Make it so I can even just see something through the telescope. Like, can I dial up Jupiter and even see it? <laughs> Is it working without a camera attached? Because I that hasn't even gone well. So, yep, I got some homework to do on that. Let's talk now about how to attach your camera, though. You said okay. there's a there's a couple of ways to do that. So t- walk me through. Let's let's go through the eyepiece route first. If if that's the type that you're gonna do. Walk me through kind of what is it that photographers need to look for? You got to buy some stuff to get your camera connected yeah. to it, right? And they're all relatively inexpensive. Okay, so walk me through. What what do you need? Okay, so and first of all, I did pull up the shots while we were talking. The close-up shot was it's obviously f15 right. because that's exactly what the lens is, and it's a fixed aperture 1900 millimeter f15. But it was shot at one one hundredth of a second at ISO eight thousand. Okay. Okay. The uh, distant shot was uh, same, F15, 19 mil- 1900 millimeters, ISO 3200 at 1 250th. Okay. Did you and have- then, of course, they're processed in Lightroom, and I do a, I do, do a little bit in Photoshop as well. Okay. Did, did you have to go with the shutter speed that fast, like 1 1,000th, because it was moving so fast? Is that... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Did I say 1,000th? I meant 1 100th. Oh, 1 100th. Okay. Yeah, so the, the close-up shot was 8,000 ISO, one one hundredth of a second. Okay. Right. And by the way, it's hard to shoot the moon at one one hundredth. Yeah. Be, especially at this magnification because it's moving so quickly. Right. So you're better off if you can get up to 200, 250th, 320th around there. Um, but again, I'm at ISO 8000 here already. Uh, yeah, F15. So not not much yeah, light. So that's what it is. So here's here's the answer to your mount question. All right. <clears throat> How you attach a camera to a scope depends on a couple of variables. A, the scope itself. What does the scope allow? Right. Right. So in my case, as I mentioned, I have a straight line option. I have a, 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 if you can picture a telescope as a tube. Yep. Right. And on one end of the tube, you have glass, which is the front element of the lens itself. Right. And on the back, it's usually a solid piece of metal because the eyepiece is actually a hole in the side and it goes through a mirror. Yep, that's how my. But is. in my case, I have a knob where I can flip the mirror down out of the way, and I have a unscrewable cap on the back, and I have an attachment that I can mount there called a Mead number sixty four T adapter. Okay, and that that is for the rear mount, and what that does is it screws onto the back of the telescope, and then it screws onto your camera using a what's called a T ring, or T mount. In any mount case, you're going to have to adapt your camera's mount, Z mount, RF mount, EF mount, you know, whatever, F mount. You're going to have to adapt that to a screw thread. The screw thread is universal. Right. So you buy a T ring or a T mount adapter for your camera mount system. Those are usually, I think, I have a clone one from Quaylight or whatever it is, but like the Mead one, I think is $15. They're not expensive. That just clicks in like a normal lens would on your camera. Mm-hmm. And then it's threaded in the middle. You then buy these other adapters like the Mead number 64 T adapter. It screws into that T ring and then it actually screws 
onto the back of the scope because it's your camera is just gonna be hanging there as part of the scope. It's a very solid mount. But now you can understand that thing's about three, maybe four, I think probably three, three and a half inches long. Right. Then you have a 5D4 hanging there. You're putting a lot of weight on the back of that. And the sheer weight of the length of that thing hanging off the back as well, that's where the counterweights come in. Right. But you're shooting straight through the scope at that point, um, which is nice. The other option is that you mount through the eyepiece hole, which is on the side of that tube, right? And in that case, you still need the T-mount or T-ring adapter, okay, that screws onto whatever mounting system your camera uses. It's threaded. And then you attach to that an adapter that basically converts your camera mount into a one and a quarter or two inch eyepiece hole. So it converts it basically into just a a small silver sleeve that slides into the hole where your eyepiece would go. But here's what's really cool and what I love about the one I use, which is the Mead Variable Projection Camera Adapter. And by the way, the the rear mount is like 35 bucks. The the rear adapter, the number 64. Is the there something projection, special about number 64? Again? Number 64, is there? Is that? That's what they actually call it. It's a Mead number 64 T adapter. And was there something specific to your camera that led you nope. get there? It's just, okay. It's just the that I, I think it's a name. part number. Okay. <laughs> like their Barlow lens is called a Mead number 126 Barlow lens. It's actually just a double power for the eyepiece. Okay. Right? The Barlow lens is like 40 bucks. But the rear adapter mount is $35. The variable projection camera adapter is $55. It would work with any system because it just screws onto the standard T-ring adapter. So I don't care if you have a Nikon, I'm on a Canon. I have a Canon T adapter for my RF mount, but then it's a standard set of threads. Right. You could buy for a Nikon, a Nikon T-ring, you know, 15 bucks, whatever. Uh Uh-huh. You can still use this variable projection camera adapter. And here's why I like this variable projection camera adapter. This thing is the coolest thing. So it's a long device. At the very end of it is the little silver part that slides physically into the scope. Right. That is threaded on to the rest of it. You can unthread that. And you can actually thread that directly into the T-ring, just the silver part. So that when you slide your camera down into the scope, your camera is almost touching the scope. Okay. And shoot that way. Or you can leave that end piece screwed into the adapter. Your camera's on the other end of the adapter. And this adapter is about four inches long. Now your camera is farther away, which changes the magnification. Right. And this variable projection adapter has two screws on the side. If you undo those two screws, it telescopes. I don't mean telescope like the telescope we're talking about. I mean, it slides and extends. It longer or shorter. So you can extend it even farther away. And the distance of throw from your camera to the scope changes magnification. So you can change it that way. Or (laughs) you can, and I usually leave it all the way collapsed when I do this. Okay. So I have this little silver thing with a little plate with threads on it screwed into the end i have the adjustable telescoping adapter itself all the way collapsed which is about three and a half four inches long i drop one of my eyepieces in 
like a 26 millimeter or an 18 millimeter for added magnification. And then I attach the camera. Okay. So now the camera is farther away from the scope, shooting through an 18 millimeter eyepiece, hitting a mirror, doing a 90 degree turn and going at a 1900 millimeter scope. And you end up with the shot that you see here that was close up and uncropped. That's what I see when I do that. And that is an 18 millimeter eyepiece in there. Wow. Now, other parts you might want. So let me just run through the parts here really quick. I have a Mead Series 4000 eyepiece and filter set. That's about $180 right now. Still available. But it's not the same set as me. Mine came with the moon filter and a bunch of color filters and, and lenses like this does. But it also came with a two-time Barlow lens, which is another $40. Bucks. Uh, the T-Ring adapter. Those are usually about $15. You can buy Mead. You can buy your, can you know, whatever, right? Generic doesn't matter at that point. The variable projection adapter, which is what I love, is 55 bucks. The 64T adapter for the back of my scope, that will be specific to the scope. Right, right. And that's 35 bucks. Um, it's, not, it's not a lot of expensive accessories to be able to do this. And that variable projection adapter is one of the huge reasons that I love shooting through the eyepiece hole right. as opposed to the rear port. Does would that adapter work on other scopes or is it is it very specific to the scope? No, the variable projection adapter, the P, so your your T-ring on your camera. Right. Variable projection adapter screws into the T-ring, right. which can be any T-ring for any mount system. Right. And then on the other end of it is depending on your scope, scopes are usually either your eyepiece is a one and a quarter inch usually or a two inch. Okay. The common for inexpensive is gonna be one and a quarter. <clears throat> And it's just a one and a quarter tube that slides into the eyepiece hole. So any any scope that accepts a one and a quarter inch eyepiece, you're done. Okay, so there's potential that even if the you bought if someone a listener bought a um a tub, Celestron, a tub, yeah, yeah, and their that manufacturer doesn't have one of these variable projection camera adapters, depending on the measurements of the eyepiece, that could work for yep, me. Not a problem. Okay. It's actually a very common used part. Okay. And it, do you know, is it the same with the eyepiece and filter sets? Like, I'm not sure that my... Yeah, you could theoretically one. mix and match anything yeah, yeah. you want there. Again, okay. all a scope has at the top, the scope has all the elements inside. Right. And then it just has a hole. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you put your eyepieces in. Right. That's it. Okay. And you can put any eyepiece that fits that hole in there regardless. Right. The Mead, the Mead 4000 series are nice. They have a 5,000 series that's better optics. It's like everything with photography, right? The optics matter. and <clears throat> But you could use Celestron eyepieces, whatever you prefer. Right. Okay, very cool. I'm going to try this again. I'm, I, I think part of my struggle might be the eyepieces. The scope itself might be acceptable, but I think the eyepieces that came with it are just garbage. So I may have to invest a little in eyepieces and see if I can improve things. And that very well could be the case. The other thing is... You know, do you have a lens hood? It's just like anything else. If you're shooting and you've got light pollution and you're trying to shoot the moon, you could just be getting glare right. from a light in your backyard. So a lot of people that, that do astrophotography, <clears throat> for example, it's pitch dark. You're in the middle of a field. Like when you were photographing your Milky Way, uh-huh. you can't see anything. Right. <laughs> it's pitch dark. Well, if you turn a light on, that ruins your eyes. So now you can't judge anything. So people use a red light. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it doesn't hurt your eyes, but you can see. Right. So 
most astrophotographers have a red flashlight or red a flashlight head. with a red filter in yep. it. Yep. Um, <clears throat> it's the same thing with the scope. It, depending on what you're doing, environment can make a big difference. Right. Okay, let's talk camera settings. We did okay. a little bit already. So now this this is where I'm I'm a little bit confused. My telescope, there's no mechanism for focus other than I think the eyepiece, like distance the eyepiece is as it's in the little there slot. There should be a focus There knob. should be. So I need yeah. to go look and see if I can figure out where that is because that's, now, that's it, been a challenge. It, depending on the scope, when I say there should be a focus knob, the focus knob could be, these are... I'm guessing inexpensive scopes still have this, but I'm going back in time when I looked through a telescope as a kid. Yeah. The inexpensive scopes were long, long tubes that were like, you know, three inches in diameter. Uh huh. And at the very end would be a 90 degree turn to an eyepiece. Uh huh. And with big, thick teeth that matched a gear. And you, there was a knob on each side. And as you turned that, the eyepiece moved farther away or closer in. That was the focus system. Right. Okay. And I think that's what I've got. Um, I still just kind of struggled. Okay. So my question then is, this, you, you're used to scope that's F15. There's an aperture inside that tube that's F15, right? Yeah. It's, it's, an, it's an effective aperture. I mean, really, um, I'm trying to remember the term that they use for it. They don't actually say aperture. Uh, I'll see if I can find it. But yes, it's it's effectively what the aperture is at that point. Um, I can tell you right now, actually, I'm pulling it up as, as I speak. Uh, let's see here. Bum, 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 bum. Focal ratio. Focal ratio. Okay. They call it. Yeah. All right. It's effectively the aperture. It's F15. Right. And, and you're not setting it on your camera because... You, this is a manual lens essentially when when you're doing this right there's no yeah. there's no electrical contact so there's no like nope. i'm going to go set the aperture to anything on your camera it's whatever the scope is providing as as far as aperture goes um, but there is in my case i do have a focus knob yeah okay so on the back of the scope i have a focus knob that is literally a knob that i turn but what i did years ago and you can still find these. I had a nightmare getting this. I ordered it. The company went out of business. They kept telling me they were going to send it anyway. It took me six months to get this one part, and it's the best thing I ever bought for my scope. Okay. And that is when you're trying to do this and you're trying to focus on, like, for example, the close-up shot. That is nightmarish to focus on because you're at F15, but you're at F15 from however many miles away, Right. The depth of field, and you can see it on this moon. The moon is a large celestial body that is an orb. So when you focus on craters on the closest surface to you, as that orb rolls back to go around the rest of the, the celestial body, you lose focus because there's depth of field involved. Right, right. Right? I mean, unless you do focus stacking, which you can do. Right. Right? I mean, right. If, if you've got a motor tracking it, or for that matter, even if you don't, you could kind of realign it right. and then align in Photoshop and crop. Um, I kind of like the the fade off myself because it gives you that sense of 3D. But on this shot, and I'm not exaggerating, 64th of a second, uh -huh. uh, 64th of an inch would be, you know how when you're trying to focus on something manually or even like for me, the, the thing is when I'm focusing the, uh, I can't think of the name of it, your eyepiece on your camera. The diopter. The, the diopter. Um, you know how you 
you're looking at the the red text. I usually leave a lens cap on and the diopter goes blurry. You bring yep. it back to focus. It goes blurry. You bring it back the other way, right? <laughs> you go you're back going and left forth, to right. back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Within a 64th of an inch, you'd go from blurry to sharp to blurry again and then back the other way. Your space of focus on a focus knob on your scope for that close-up shot is nightmarish. So what I bought is a cable. You take off the knob, you attach this cable that hangs off about eight inches okay. and has a knob on the end of it. So I don't have to touch the scope, which makes the scope move. Right, yes. Which makes focus impossible. Okay. Right? It's like doing a long exposure, but pushing the shutter button on the camera instead of using a cabled remote. Uh-huh. Or not using mirror lockup. Right, right. Well, every time I touch the camera to focus it, the scope moves. So this cable lets me grab the cable and it doesn't move the scope. I mean, sometimes it does. And focus it away from the scope. And it's it's one of the best utilities I ever bought. I have no idea where I, I got it because the company went out of business. Hmm. I need to but find you can it. find a cable focus. Okay, cable scope, cable sure. focus yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. How do you go about figuring out your shutter speed then? Okay. So, in this case, it varies. If you're just shooting the moon with a camera and lens in your hand, handheld, right? There are you can Google it, and there's just kind of standard settings. A lot of people say like you know one two fiftieth of a second at f eleven, and just dial your ISO into whatever you need. You don't need a lot. Right. The moon is very, very bright. And so usually, you know, you'll be ISO 800 or something. I've had it where I've photographed the moon at ISO 200, at F11, at 250th of a second handheld on a camera. When you do the scope and you jump up to F15 and 1900 millimeters, it changes. Now, the obviously, in this case, my aperture is a moot point. Right. So it's a balancing act. For me, I usually want to be around 250th of a second because I'm not using my tracking motor. Okay. And so I need to be able to catch it as in the viewfinder it's moving. And usually 200th, 250th of a second works for that. And then I just do the ISO to whatever I need, but I almost always, because of the, the extreme dynamic range, I am completely willing to, un and by the way, uh, the dark black sky Yes. I'm completely willing to underexpose a stop or so to keep those those highlights safe where I can choose how much highlight I want. Right. And they're not clipped. So in this particular case, the one that was far away, uh, like I mentioned uh, a little while ago, was 3,200 at 250th of a second, obviously F15. The close-up shot, I had to drop to 1 100th of a second jump up to ISO 8000. And even then, it was horribly underexposed. I mean, to give you an idea, that shot, uh, what, let me jump over here. That particular shot, I have added a half a stop of exposure. Okay. okay. So it was, you know, half a stop underexposed at 1 100th and 8000. Um, my main thing is, and here's a big thing. First of all, this is a fairly benign object that you're photographing. Noise reduction isn't going to hurt it a lot. 
right? right. The sea of tranquility is this piece of sand that's dark, you know, <laughs> right. or whatever that is on the moon. Right. Uh, maybe that's not the sea of tranquility. I don't know. I think it is. Um, but with a little bit of masking on your sharpening in Lightroom, you know, you can do your noise reduction at 20 and, and 8,000 ISO, the noise is gone. Right, right. And then take it into Photoshop and just, if you want to add a little bit of sharpening back into those crater edges, just do a, you know, high pass sharpening effect or something. Right. There's a lot that you can do to minimize the noise. The hardest part for me on the moon is as you bring back any shadows to balance out that contrast, that extreme dynamic range, your dark sky gets noise in it. So I always try and save the sky to make sure the sky does not show the noise. I want it to feel like this is a celestial body in black space. Right. That's one of my protected areas to me that I don't mess with. Right. Ah, oh, so cool. I love it. Okay, we got to wrap up the show here. I want to just mention one other technique. If someone doesn't want to try to go through a telescope and you want to try to maximize the detail that you can get in the moon, I'll have an example in the show notes. I, I knew we were doing this, this episode, so my homework before the show was I wanted to make sure I went and checked out how to stack the moon. And, uh, and so I did, and I finished it just before we got on. <laughs> this is my first attempt. I see it in the show notes, yeah. At stacking. And so um, this was taken with a very inexpensive 300 millimeter lens on my crop sensor camera. I took 300 images of the moon. And uh, so I, I like got the moon so that it was, the moon was moving from where my view was left to right on my camera. And so I would set it up so that the tripod was holding things and the the moon was on the left side and then i set the intervalometer to just take pictures took 100 pictures in a row and every second writing a frame to the memory card and just took it while that moon was moving across the the sensor and then uh and i did it three different times so i got a total of 300 frames and then i went and uh and stacked them and the stacking there's two pieces of software i used and i'll I'll put together a a blog post about this eventually after i do a little more testing and and figure out the best steps uh but there was kind of two phases i I took it through one software called pip p-i-p-p and it's designed just to line up those those moons because they're they're moving across and a lot of the software struggled i tried uh the starry landscape or starry yeah starry sky stacker start Starry Sky Stacker, yeah, which is a Mac software. Mac software, it forty it, bucks. It couldn't make sense of the moon moving across. It did. It, it was befuddled. It couldn't do it. So this was Windows only PIP software that I started with. That got what about him, Photoshop. That got him, you could do that. Yeah, you could manually go and align or or tell Photoshop no, to align all the images. Alignment. Right, right, right. I didn't try it to see, but three hundred images. I'm not sure how well that's. That might yeah, Photoshop would choke. <laughs> it might not work. So the what the whole thing that Pip does is just align them all so that your one moon it's it's built specific for uh, planets and moon objects, not stars, and it will just line them all up so that then you can go and take it from there into stacking software that will pull the details out of it. And so I I have an example in the show notes of a, a moon that has a whole ton of detail in it that didn't take anything more than I did it at 300 millimeters and even at 200 millimeters. I'm sure you could get um, get quite a lot of detail out of the moon and, and be able to do it. So it's pretty fun. I love it. Yeah, it's, it, it is, uh, 
It really is. To me, there's just something about this subject that is so fun to photograph. I will say this. Generally, there's a few exceptions. Like there's a guy who just posted a a moon on Instagram and Twitter. Yes. That took my breath away. And he also shoots nebulas and everything else. And he does it with a normal scope. He's an amateur. And oh my gosh. Right. I'm horrible. I, I need I need to stop photographing <laughs> celestial bodies, but generally most people prefer to photograph a not full moon, right? And part of the reason for that is standard lighting, right? Flat lighting, when you have a moon that's full, it's effectively flatly lit. Right. When you have a half a moon, that's angled light. It's shaped. It's hitting half of it, just like you would do a portrait. The light's on, like when you have a three-quarter moon, that's like having a softbox or a strobe camera right at 40 degrees up in the air, shooting 40 degrees down, but half the subject is in darkness right? with no fill light or no reflector. So generally, most people like the shape that you get and the shadows that you get out of a non-full moon shot. Exactly, exactly. And, and I'm interested to try it. I did it, uh, you know, yesterday and we happen to have a full moon. So I, I do agree. I really want to do a half moon. And, and that one shot that you mentioned, I'll put a link. I'll, I'll find it and put a link in the show notes. I was astounded by yes. this image as well. It, it is incredible. One of the 85 things, megapixels and it was... He took something like 84,000 images or... 84,000 shots. Something like that. I can't remember how many, but it was a, a lot. <laughs> And yeah. the, the amazing part about it to me as I looked at that image was the dark side of the moon, because it's a, I think it's about a half moon. The dark side, you can see a little bit of the detail from the dark side of the moon in his shot. And I, it's just incredible. It's stunning. It, it I, literally is stunning. And the, the effort that it must have taken to produce that, I really would love to have like a behind the shot. Maybe I'll try to reach out to him and see if I can get him to come on come on the podcast that would be so so interesting 24,000 okay I found it right here it's from Andrew McCarthy he's uh, at a James McCarthy on Twitter and he shared this image and amazing amazing detail the the colors are there in the moon uh, which when you do stacking you do start to see the colors I didn't stack enough images I, I know that already I didn't have the time to spend on it to to take enough images so that I could really get the colors. But wow, is this this shot is just amazing. I, I will link to it in the show notes. Yeah, it's it's wow. <laughs> yes. Quite quite exciting. All right. So there you go. That's that's gonna be our episode for today. We talked about a bunch of doodads, so I, I'm not going to do any doodads <laughs> for for recommendations this week. I want to remind everyone, you can find the show notes, and you definitely need to find the show notes so you can see these images. Masterphotographypodcast.com is where they'll be. You can join our Facebook group, Master Photography Podcast. If you search for that, it'll be there. You do have to answer a question of a name of the host. And I we, we get, I bet, about 30 or 40 people asking to join this group every day. And about half of them don't answer that question. I don't know how they're finding the group exactly, but um, they don't answer. And if you don't, I know you're not a listener because we tell you on the shows a lot <laughs> that you have to right. answer this question. And it's a naming a host. So you, Jeff will work. I'm on there on here all the time. If you don't listen, you don't, just don't know. And now Steve will work for the second time and be able to, to I'll, I'll let you in. You just put the Steve in and it'll, 
it'd be easy for me to say, okay, they've listened. Um, then there is the Instagram account for the show. Master Photography Podcast is the, the handle there. My work is over at jsharmanphotos.com. You can find my other podcast, a monthly show, Photo Taco Podcast, where I break down a lot Great of podcast. technical topics. Thanks, Steve. And uh, my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram handles will all be in the show notes too. I'm not going to say them here. Steve, where can people find you? Uh, portfolio is stevebrazel.com. It's like Brazil, but it's two L's. And then uh, the podcast is at behindtheshot.tv. On Twitter, it's, uh, well, let's do it this way. My personal stuff is Twitter and Instagram are at Steve Brazel. The podcast is at behindtheshot.tv. I'm on Facebook, Steve Brazel Photography and Behind the Shot Podcast, but I I'm I prefer Twitter. Uh, I'm a big Twitter guy. Yeah, so. love Twitter. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me, Steve. It was so much I, fun. I, I always appreciate the invitation. Excited all week for this, so I enjoy the conversation. Thank you. And we know I know you got to get off to another episode or another podcast you guys are doing. So good luck with yeah, that. We're going to do our live image critiques today yeah. with uh, Don Komarichka and Photo Joseph. Yeah, I love Photo Joseph too. He's great. So, all right. Thanks so much, everybody. We will see you again in another seven days. Bye.